chapter 17, and we'll finish out the, the chapter. And it's the end of Jesus' prayer, what we call the high priestly prayer. And, and I'll just let you know that as we round out this chapter, we'll leave John uh, for a little while then. We'll come back uh, after this prayer. Uh, Jesus and his disciples go to the garden, and we'll pick that up uh, later on in, in 2022. Uh, but uh, but we'll, we'll close out with uh, Jesus' prayer. It ends basically what we call this upper room discourse, Jesus' teaching, and, and this prayer incorporates a lot of the teaching that he has given. And as he started this prayer, we, we call it the high priestly prayer in large part because of the form of the prayer. It's the same form that the high priest would pray at the Day of Atonement, where he would pray for himself and his ministry, and Jesus has done that. Where he prays for those who are around him, his fellow priests, the high priest would, and, and Jesus prayed for his disciples, and we looked at that. And then the high priest would pray for all of God's people, and we see where Jesus does that here. And so we'll pick up with Jesus' prayer, uh, John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Jesus continues praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them, or I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this great prayer that Jesus prayed. When he prays for us, Lord, help us to feel it in our hearts. Help us to know what Jesus is praying for us, that it may lift us up and Grow us deeper into your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to a little closer to Christmas now, less than two weeks away, and we see the decorations, and, and we think about the reason for Christmas. And it always, for me, goes to Luke chapter 2, uh, when the angel comes, the shepherds are in the field, and, and the angel comes, and, and he tells the shepherd, Fear not, for...
Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then there's the multitude of angels. And they are saying, glory to God in the highest, and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And there are three themes that the angels say. There's actually several themes in there that you could pick up on, but there's three themes that the angels are, are saying there that also come out in this prayer, in the, in the last part of the prayer especially. The angel talks about good news uh, for all the people. Not just the nation of Israel. That's, that's what the Jewish people had thought. This will be a, a nation of Israel thing. But the angel right away announces, no, this is for all the people. And Jesus, in his prayer here, we see he mentions the world. Another theme that the angels speak of is, is the glory of God. Glory to God. And, and Jesus speaks of glory, his glory. And he mentions that in the prayer. He's mentioned it in his teaching as well. Also, the, angel, uh, the angels, the multitude, talk about peace on earth, uh, among those on earth. Now, we do have peace with God because of Jesus and what he does. He comes into this world and he dies on the cross and, and we're forgiven, we're reconciled, and we have peace with God. But the angels are also saying, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And, and Jesus here prays for this unity among God's people, this, this oneness. And he does this in praying for us. As he begins the last part of this prayer in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, not only for these disciples standing or sitting right with him at the time, but also those who will believe in me through their word. And, and this is us. And Jesus, as he prays this, he's making an assumption, or actually it's Jesus, he knows that, that the disciples will be effective in their witness. The disciples are more effective than they realized they could be in their witness. And Jesus knows this. The disciples, after Jesus ascends into heaven, they're going to be sitting around wondering how they can spread the news. Jesus told them to do that. They were also told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they're kind of sitting around waiting what this is going to be like. And then in the book of Acts, we read how it took off. And they're speaking in different languages. And they're healing people. And, and they're doing things far beyond what they could have imagined. And the word has gone down generation to generation. And there's this implied idea in Jesus' prayer. And it comes out a little bit more at the end that, that one people will tell another people. One generation will pass this to another generation. And Jesus knows that this will be successful. He knows that the word is effective. And so he prays for us who believe through their word 
As I mentioned, we'll get to the end and we'll see, and he's also praying that we'll continue to spread that word. And, and notice the purpose. He mentions it a couple of times. Uh, there, there's a purpose here, that the world may believe. He mentions it in, in verse 21, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, that the world may know that you have sent me. Now there's going to be more. We're going to build on this a little bit. I'm kind of starting with the end. Uh, but, but that the world will know. Much like the angels talking to the shepherds, there is a message here that is for the world. But then we look at how Jesus sets up. How will the world know? What's the so that? What comes before that? And this is surprising. Sometimes we miss this. But if we go back in verse 21, right at the beginning, that they may all be one. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then look at verse 23. He mentions it again, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And this isn't simply a unity of, of love, if you will, a unity of, well, let's just try to get along type thing. But this is a unity that's predicated on the, the revelation of the Father uh, by the Son, this, this oneness, this unity of purpose, uh, the, the Father and the Son. You know, and Jesus has talked about this before, back in chapter 14, uh, Father and Son so united that Jesus teaches that the, the Father who dwells in me, he says, the Father who dwells in me does his works. It's as though the Father is, is performing the works of Jesus. It's the Father's works. They're so united uh, in this purpose. And now the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're all distinguishable, and we've seen that. You can see that in Scripture. You know, the baptism of Jesus is, is the classic example. There's Jesus, and then there's a voice, the Father from heaven, and then there's uh, the Holy Spirit that looks like it's descending like a dove. And, and they're all distinguishable, yet they are one. And, and as... D.A. Carson writes, let me just quote him, he said, similarly, the believers, still distinct, are to be one in purpose, in love, in action undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. Joint submission to who Christ is, who God is. No, no, Jesus prays that they also may be in us. And that's who we are. And that goes back to John chapter 15 when he was teaching about the vine and we're the branches and then he is the, the true vine and, and we're all part of him and we're all unified in him. And this unity should be observable. As, as Sinclair Ferguson writes, there is nothing in this world like this unity. The unity of disciples is supernatural, patterned after the very being of God. 
and it is created by the indwelling of one and the same Holy Spirit in each member of the fellowship. Paul, several times, would write about this unity. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, uh, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And a couple verses later he writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Uh, to pick up Sinclair Ferguson again, he writes this, The fellowship of Christians transcends all natural and social distinctions and divisions. When Christ is all to us, and we recognize that he indwells each of us by his Spirit, a bond of fellowship and love is created that is unparalleled in this world. Our perspective of each other, who we are, brothers and sisters in Christ, gets transformed. A oneness, a unity that can only come from God. And yes, we do retain our distinctions. That's how we're made. God made us male and female. There's different nationalities, different skin colors and hair colors and eye colors. There's different upbringings, different social backgrounds, different levels of education, different ages. And yet, the bottom line is this, we're all one in Christ. And, and the, the distinctions should highlight the beauty of the grace of this unity that prevails. We're distinct. We're made that way. God's creative. But we're one in God. We're one in Christ. And that, that unity should draw us together in a way this world just can't understand. This display of, of true unity will be unworldly. It will be, should be compelling. It should be observable. It should be built upon the word. You see that in verse 20 where Jesus said it's the word. This unity has nothing to do with nationalism. You know, Israel was the first one to learn that and that's been had to learn been learned down through history. It has nothing to do with nationalism. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with clubs and associations and professions or any of that. Those are things that we do in the world, but our unity in Christ is far beyond that. It's a godly unity, and I think sometimes we miss that point. It's a unity that can only come from God, and it will be 
distinct. And the world should be able to see Jesus through that unity. Who sent Jesus? Why he came? And that the Father loves his people. And his people love each other even as the Father loves the Son. Notice that in verse 23, because that also is a huge statement that Jesus makes as he prays this prayer, remember, for us, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I, I like how one theologian writes, the thought is breathtakingly extravagant. When you think of the love that the Father has for the Son from eternity past, the great, pure, true, undefiled love that's been since the foundation of the world, as Jesus says in verse 24, from eternity past. And that's how much the Father loves you. And so then Jesus, out of that, that love that God has for us, makes, makes another request. And this one is breathtaking as well. And this request is for us. And it concerns his glory. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Now, that word desire, Father, I desire. It's, it's the word in Greek, it's thelo, and it gets used quite often. But what's interesting about that word and causes me to pause sometimes is is Jesus will use that very same word, according to Matthew in Matthew 26, verse 39, that word fellow. He uses that very same word when he's praying in the garden. And he prays about, he knows what's coming. And he prays about the cup going to the cross. He said, if possible, uh, he's praying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, it's the same word, not as I desire, but as you, Father. There are two prayers very closely connected in time, and, and there, you can see the difference. Here he's praying, I will, and in the garden, not as I will, Father, but as you. And while the prayers seem to be a little bit different, quite different actually, we can see that they're intimately connected. Because as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest, as he's facing the terror of the cross, this is the great crisis. The torture of the cross is right in front of him. The humiliation, the God-forsakenness of the cross is right there. Anyone who hangs on a tree, it's written, is cursed by God. 
that's right there in front of him. And he's desiring another way, as anyone would. If there's any other way out of this torture, out of this God-forsakenness, then let's do that. But not as I will. As, as you will. When he prays in the garden, he's got a, another wish. The, what he wants in the garden to, to somehow get out of the cross, somehow find another way, that will be minimized by his will that, that you will be with him in heaven. And that you see his glory. That's his prayer. That's the greater wish he has. And so when he goes to the garden and he knows the cross is there and he's wondering if there's another way, he's able to pray but not as I will. Because this other will, this other desire, that overrides the will to avoid the cross. And he's able to pray these two prayers so closely together because he knows that the one leads to the other. And he knows the torture of the cross will lead to us being with him and seeing his glory. And Jesus wants his disciples to see his glory because he knows, he knows what we're going to see in this world. In verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. The disciples, they're going to witness the ultimate rejection of Jesus, really. They will hear the cries to have him crucified. Let's just kill him and be done with him and never have to look at him again. Crucify him. They will hear that. And the disciples themselves will meet rejection as they go out and spread the word. And that rejection of God has continued down through the years and into our lifetime, especially in places around the world. But even, even we can see it. We've all heard and almost don't even bat an eye anymore when we hear the Lord's name used in vain. It's become so common that it almost doesn't faze us anymore. We've heard him be demeaned. We've heard Christians be despised. We've heard his word get maligned, called hateful. Worldly reinterpretations and misinterpretations and outright rejection of the word. We've seen this. We've heard it. Many are deceived by it. But in the midst of all of it, remember this. Jesus is praying for you that you will know the truth and you will be with him in heaven and you will see his glory. He prays this knowing what we're going to see. And we get to know what his will is. That we rely on his word. That we'll be unified by his spirit. Together we'll see his glory. And it's a continuing work. When you look at verse 26, 
and I will continue to make it known. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And Christ does continue to make it known. Make it known to us, and make it known through us. As this is our time in the Word, in the Spirit, to spread that truth of who Christ is. And in this prayer, when we look at it, we can see how Jesus prays for us. We can see what he desires for us. And it is securing and, and encouraging when we see that. Here's Jesus, his sovereign will, and he's praying for us like this. And it also teaches us how we should live. the unity that we should seek in Christ, his will for us. Because here's what happens. When the threats of this world, when the rejection of the world that Jesus has taught his disciples, you're not in this world, when the threats and the rejection aren't enough, Satan has another trick, and he will look to divide look to divide his people and silence them that way. But Christ, his sovereign will, he wants you to be with him. He wants you to see his glory. He wants you to know the great love that the triune God has for you. He wants you to know that Christ, he dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. And you're united in that. And he wants you to know and to live these truths so deeply that the world sees Christ in it as he continues to make his name known. And so this Christmas, as we look at the decorations, as we sing the songs, as we think of our Savior born into the world. May we be unified in worshiping him. May we be unified uh, in taking joy in this, this baby that gets born, this, this God who becomes flesh, the word became flesh. May we take joy in our Savior. And may we be unified in a way the world doesn't. May that be our prayer this holiday season, that we are so aware of who we are in Christ and that Christ is in us, that the world can't help but wonder, what is this Christmas all about? Who is this baby? Who is this God who can do this amazing thing? Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for our salvation. We thank you for your spirit in us. And Lord, may that be seen this holiday season. In this world of disunity, in this world of anger, in this world of fighting, in this world of never seeing eye to eye with anyone, may you 
put your spirit so firmly in our hearts. May our unity be so powerful and compelling to the world that it can't help but notice this great God whom we worship. Lord, to you be all the glory. To you be all the praise. Unify us in your truth that we may be bold, that we may lift each other up, that we may speak your truth and do your purpose in this world. And it's in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.